0: Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. With the goal of educating and empowering women, each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the As a Woman podcast. Today, we are talking about eating plant based. And this is not going to be an entire episode to try to convince you that you should eat more plants. I have plenty of those episodes already. And I think the data really speaks for itself that eating a diet more consistent, that's heavy in plants, whole foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grain, carbohydrates, lots of fiber, is better than eating processed foods and added sugar, right? We're not going to debate that anymore. But what I want to talk about is making the transition and making it a lifestyle and what things you can do. And just like everything in life, this is not all or none. By no means do I ever want anybody, a patient, a person, a listener, a follower, a friend, a family member, to feel like this is an all or nothing thing. One thing I say is when you treat your body kindly on most days, you allow yourself room to enjoy your life. Every decision you make is a decision either in support of or against your health and your wellness. And we really need to start treating our body in the way that it deserves. But first, let's dive into fertility in the news, and we are going to talk about the new Apple Watch. This is not an advertisement for Apple or sponsored or anything. I just want to talk about the new design because I think it is fascinating that there's going to be a temperature check in it. So what that means is the Apple Watch will now feature the ability to track your menstrual cycles and do basal body temperature. So essentially the Apple Watch is going to be helping you determine your fertile window. So I think this is fantastic. So an Apple Watch, something that people wear all the time. It's going to have a sensor on it and they're going to use that temperature data and they're going to help you target your fertile window and when you ovulate just like other BBT trackers will do or already do. I'm sure the other companies out there that already have BBT trackers are not thrilled with this, but this watch will have a sensor that's on the back of it close to your skin that is going to track your temperature. And it's also going to use your sleep feature. So after you have slept for five nights with the watch, it's then going to start tracking your temperature. And after two menstrual cycles of wearing the watch, you are then going to get predictive data based on your last two periods. So you will get a notification of when they think you will have ovulated and a confirmation when your temp rises after ovulation. So this is really interesting. We're seeing Apple get into the fertility device and the ovulation tracking game. Personally, I think this is a great feature to add on to a wearable that a lot of people already have. We know that pregnancy tracking apps and period tracking and ovulation tracking has been a huge industry right now. And instead of buying a separate device, this is really nice. Now, one concern since the overruling of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court Is reproductive health apps their ability to share data with potential police officers or somebody who could be investigating you, especially in states where abortion has been limited? So, Apple in their presentation went to great lengths to say that they have privacy protections and all health and fitness data is encrypted. So, they said no health data will be shared without your permission and you can select whether you want to share or not share your data. Overall, let's remember that. Using BBT or basal body temperature to track your cycles is only helpful if you have regular predictable cycles. So, if your cycles come at irregular intervals, this is going to be hard because what the app is trying to do or what the watch is trying to do is use what's happened in two prior cycles to come up with the mathematical formula to predict when you'll ovulate in the next cycle. So, it's predicting that based on when you ovulated two times prior. They're seeing the shift, they're counting backwards based on when your progesterone normally rises after ovulation, and they're telling you you're off date. So if your periods vary by more than just a few days every month, then we are concerned this is not going to be as accurate. So that same warning we give to anybody who's trying to do cycle tracking with BBT or with a calendar method, because these are really closely related. Remember that getting that confirmation of the progesterone surge is what raises your temperature. So when you ovulate and in that follicular phase, you have no progesterone, you're just growing estrogen. At the time of ovulation, peak estrogen and low progesterone. After ovulation, however, that follicle that grew the egg reforms the corpus luteum and now it is going to make progesterone. And this progesterone is what causes your temperature to elevate. So we have elevated temperature in the luteal phase. And what the watch is trying to determine, or any basal body temperature tracking method, when does that progesterone rise occur? And again, it occurs after ovulation. All right, so let's dive back into whole food plant-based eating. So first, what is plant-based? When we say whole food plant-based, what we mean is that you are eating mostly plants or a diet very high in plants and plant-rich. It does not mean you can't eat meat. We do say whole food plant-based and a lot of us who are whole food plant-based use it that way to distinguish it from being vegan, meaning when I first went vegan, I ate Oreos. I mean, they're vegan and really junky food. So you can be a junk food vegan, super easy. But when we say we're whole food plant-based, you know, we're really trying to eat foods that are whole and less processed and less artificial. So the Oreos don't really fit into the diet. Officially, however, a plant-based diet is one that is mostly plants, so mostly vegetables, whole grains, fruits, beans, seeds, and nuts. But you can have some meat. It's not a restrictive diet. We usually say two-thirds of your plate should be plant-based foods if you're doing a whole food plant-based diet. And the remaining third could be a lean protein, whether that is tofu or beans or chicken or fish. We really do not recommend red meat as much as it is a cancer-causing. It's a carcinogen. We know that. And one of the nice things about a whole food plant-based diet is that it consistently and studies, more than two decades worth of studies, has shown to reduce your risk of cancer. And this is ongoing and so important. There was recently a study published in Nature that was showing us that there is an increase in early onset cancer, meaning cancer before the age of 50. I think when most of us think of cancer, we're thinking about cancers that's not going to happen now, that's going to happen later. We're seeing more celebrities in the news get diagnosed with cancers at an earlier age. And the increase in cancer in younger populations is becoming more prevalent. That's proven in studies. And so why are we seeing an increase in early onset cancer? It's our lifestyle. It's the modern lifestyle that we didn't previously had. And a lot of that has to do with our diet and other factors, how much we drink, how sedentary so many people are, our focus on screens and not being outdoors and the lack of sleep. So the lifestyle that we are living as modern people in this society is causing more cancer. We're seeing that. Now, how do we combat that? Well, you have to go change your lifestyle. There's a lot of different health benefits, To eating a plant-focused diet. And so let's think some of those. Number one, it can support your immune system. So that's really great. Meaning plants have nutrients in them that you can't just get from everywhere. They have different vitamins and minerals. They have lots of antioxidants and they help keep your cells functioning normally. So, a healthy immune system is really important because what do you think fights cancer if you start having cancer develop in your body? It's going to be your immune system. What do you think helps fight you against germs and other organisms and prevent you from getting sick, eating lots of plants? What is going to allow your immune system to function more normally and not abnormally? Or if you have an autoimmune disease, right? What is an autoimmune disease? It is a malfunction of your own immune system, right? So if we want to support our immune system the best, plants are the way to do that. Plant foods also have been shown to decrease inflammation. And I could talk about inflammation so much, I actually talk about it a ton in my natural fertility course, in the Enhance Your Natural Fertility course, which is focusing on lifestyle and fertility factors. But inflammation in our body is really toxic to our cells. And what we know is that the antioxidants that are in foods that boost your immune system They also can help neutralize some of these toxins and they can help decrease your inflammation. There's something in a lot of plants that are called antioxidants and they grab something called reactive oxygen species or free radicals. And these things are really cause a lot of damage inside of our body. And they're really high in periods of inflammation. So when you eat things that are non-plants, that are highly inflammatory you're increasing your inflammation. And when you eat some plants, you are eating things that can decrease your inflammation, and it's letting your body respond better to the world around you. We also have good evidence, and we know from studies, chronic inflammation damages your body. It has been linked to cancer. It's been linked to other inflammatory and autoimmune diseases. It's been linked to things like endometriosis and arthritis. So a plant-based diet helps you remove some of the triggers of these diseases in addition to allowing your body to fight them. So that's amazing. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune and luckily I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to Quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know the women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? Another thing a plant-based diet does is really help you maintain a healthy weight. So we know that being obese or overweight is a risk factor for so many diseases, including cancer. There's over 12 types of cancer, including colon, breast cancer, uterine cancer, esophagus cancer, kidney cancer, pancreatic cancer, that are really sensitive to inflammation, hormone imbalance, and your weight. So excess weight causes more inflammation, and excess weight also messes up your hormones. So if you want to get pregnant or you're concerned about your fertility, Having a healthy weight really helps keep your hormones in check. And that's because those fat cells, remember, they make some estrogen. And that estrogen tells the brain to send out less FSH. And less FSH doesn't allow you to ovulate as reliably or as predictably. So if you eat a lot of plants, one thing is that you're substituting some calorie-dense foods or some sugar-based or artificial processed foods with plants. You're automatically removing some foods that can be really bad for you and plants are high in fiber. So fiber is present in all real foods that are out there and it is really important in gut health. So I think everybody's been hearing about gut health and that means that when your intestines, which are what absorbs your food and everything you intake, needs to be able to absorb nutrients and we need it to be able to decrease inflammation. So fiber can help lower your cholesterol, it can help stabilize your blood sugar, it helps you have regular bowel movements. But it's also important to decrease your cancer risk. So eating fiber is extremely important. And having a plant-based diet, as we know, due to some of these factors, can decrease your risk of other chronic illness like diabetes, heart disease, stroke. All right, so I just said I wasn't going to tell you all the reasons why you should eat plants, but now I just spent five minutes doing so. So the take home is why should you eat mostly plant-based foods? It's going to decrease your inflammation. It's going to increase your immune system functioning normally. It's going to help you maintain a healthy weight and it's going to lower your cancer risk. And it's also going to improve your fertility. We have many fertility studies showing things like an increase in red meat has a decrease in blast formation in IVF studies. Well, that's not great. An increase in red meat is associated with worsening endometriosis. So that's also not great. And when you consume more animal based products over vegetable based products for protein, you have a higher risk of anovulatory infertility. So there's evidence across the spectrum that eating more plants is good for you. And this just makes sense, right? You have one body, you put in food, and it's going to impact your entire body, your organ systems, your fertility, your hormones, your weight, your cancer risk. It's all tied together. And probably a ton of it is tied to that inflammation. I truly think that that inflammation is what is dictating so much of our health risk. So trying to focus on dropping your inflammation is huge. And one of the easiest and most modifiable factors is to take in more plants. Okay, so you're listening. Yes, Nat, let's eat more plants. I am with you. What, what do I do? How do I eat? It feels very overwhelming. To go all the way whole food plant-based is to be fruits, vegetables, grains. You do not have dairy. You do not have eggs. You do not have meat. That's how... I live, that does not have to be how you live. What I usually recommend to patients is exactly this. I'm going to tell you right now. Plants should take up the majority of the food that you intake. So how are we going to do that? We're going to start by having meatless Monday. So absolutely no meat on Monday. Okay. Just, it's a nice alliteration. I like it. It's easy to remember. You're going to plan out no meat in your meals on Monday. Your other days of the week, and I didn't say it has to be vegan. I didn't say it has to have no dairy or no eggs. Just at the very beginning, you're not going to have meat, okay? No meat on Monday. Then the other days of the week, you're going to have meat only one serving a day. So the other two, if you eat three meals a day, are not going to have meat in them. What you are going to find is that when you take meat out of your diet, because I was not born a vegan. I did, was not at all raised this way. I actually was raised in a very meat and potatoes family where my meals were totally all about the protein. You're going to have a steak and you're going to have a carb and maybe you'll have a vegetable. I'm not even joking. It just really was not the culture. Probably so many of us grew up in. So this was a whole new way of eating. And what I found out is when I took that huge chunk of steak off the plate, what I had to put there, I had to figure out what to eat. You're automatically going to be filling with some more plants and better choices. All right. And then you're only going to have red meat one serving a week. So if you're a red meat person, you just love it. It's only coming one time a week. So pick one meal. So you have automatically dropped your animal products that you intake into your body down significantly by just making small modifications, So I usually say do that first and then go and try to say, well, do I really need dairy? Can I take out or limit some dairy? Can I limit dairy to one meal a day instead of every meal? Can I limit eggs or do I need eggs or do I like eggs? And this is for you. This is the diet, not a diet. This is the lifestyle that you're trying to achieve. And you're going to be listening to your body, but noticing that you're not trying to just eat a plate of scrambled eggs. We want to have something high in fruits and vegetables instead. So how are you going to achieve that balance? And it's going to take some time. So that's going to be number one step, restructuring how you think about your meals. Now, what do I do and how do I eat? Because we've got kids and it's really busy and my kids are really different. So my daughter has never had meat before her whole life. I had stopped eating meat for a substantial period of time by the time she was born. And I just didn't cook in the house. So I saw no reason to make meat for a child. I also had done a lot of research at this time and truly believe that not consuming animal-based products is a much healthier way to live. So we just didn't cook it. It's not what we cook. It's not what we cook. So she grew up that way, never had any desire for it. And then as we got older and she saw what other people ate, I've always had the mentality, you can make your own decisions. I'm not going to impose... But I want on you, you're a child. However, when you're in my house, like I'm making the dinner, I'm not making special dinner. So we eat the same things at dinner. We, that's what we eat at home. Those are the meals we have. But when you're out, when you're at school, when we order from a restaurant, even if we're eating our house, you can order whatever you want. So if you want to eat meat, if you want to order chicken, I don't care. You're a human who gets to make their own choices and I'm not here to restrict you. She knows that we don't eat it to be healthier, and she has chosen not to eat meat because she's ethically very inclined. She loves animals, and she has no desire to eat an animal. The end. My son, on the other hand, does not complain, eats our meals at home, totally fine, but will completely choose meat sometimes at school. He has no problem saying, I ate chicken tenders and they were awesome, or I want to order the chicken fried rice. He's six. But he didn't eat meat products for a substantial all his early years until he went to school or he started trying some. So can you raise kids this way? Up, Absolutely. It's all about whatever feels comfortable to you. And I have some friends who would never imagine letting their kids eat chicken tenders at school. But that's just not my mindset. My mindset is you need to eat and make your own choices and feel good with them. I know that if I make something off limits, it's going to become super enticing. But really, we're just trying to model good behavior. And you know what? they eat their vegetables, they eat their Brussels sprouts and their cauliflower and they never complain about it and they eat vegetables that I didn't even know existed when I was their age. So, we're doing okay on that end. I also am so basic when it comes to meals during the week. I have a few meals that we eat all the time and I meal plan and I do lunches very simply. But I just don't have time. I'm a mom and I'm busy and I want to eat healthy, so what do I do? I meal prep on Sunday. That's just the time we've dedicated that we can get groceries and I can meal prep and my husband can spend time with the kids. So that time is carved out. I would rather have it to do other things. But this feels like self-care to me because if I don't, then it's going to be much harder for us to eat and take care of our bodies. So during the week for lunches, make lunches for five days of the week. Usually what we'll do is get a big thing of spinach or kale or arugula and make salads. And so, salads usually are going to have, I usually have edamame that I will steam up and put in there. I will usually put some type of protein, whether it's tofu or tempa. I usually will add in some type of fruit, like I just love fruit in salads. So, grapes, blueberries, or strawberries, or apples, and then a nut. So, whether it's pistachios or almonds or cashews, whatever, just depends on whatever we have. But that is the basic salad plan for me. So, some type of greens, a protein, nuts. Fruit. Super simple, right? That's what we do. Um, And don't even try to make it creative. We eat that two to three days of the week, depending on how big of a thing of lettuce we had. So two to three days. And I make them for my husband just because it's like, here, honey, Jace, be be healthy. We eat that salad. So there we go. Then I usually make a stir fry for one day. So I use quinoa. I get a stir fry mixed veggie from HEB. So it's already pre-chopped. And I usually just bake up some tofu real easy. And so split that between us and we have a stir fry. And then I usually will plan the other day is going to be a leftover for something we make during the week. During the week, I usually try to make something in the crock pot at least once. So a day that I work from home that I can go throw everything in during lunch, that's either going to be a curry, a minestrone soup, a chili. I don't even know what else do I make in the crock pot. But so something that's kind of a one pot dish. I will chop up the things for it on Sunday and put them all in a Tupperware. So a big glass Pyrex. And then I can just dump them all into the crockpot. 90% of the time is just a soup just because that's easy for us. Dop them all in the crockpot and then that's our dinner that night. That one is usually gives us leftovers for the other day. Okay, then we live in Texas, y'all. Taco Tuesday, pretty much a staple around here. So our standard taco, I'm telling you right now, black beans butternut squash, I buy it pre-chopped. So I don't even have to mess with that. I just put it in the oven and it just softens and it, it's delicious with black beans in your taco. And then we have avocado and tomatoes that we will cut up and I will cook cauliflower on the side. 90% of the time, it's exactly that for Taco Tuesday. Kids love it too. That's what we do for Taco Tuesday. So boom, two meals. And when I'm ordering my groceries, I don't even think about it. Then we'll usually have a pasta night, one night a week where it's either risotto, Jason makes the best risotto, or risotto usually has carrots and green beans in it, or it'll be what the kids call tunnel pasta, which is a like cashew-based mixed with tomato sauce. I mean, this one's so easy. Cook your pasta, then you're gonna soak a cup of cashews. You're gonna blend them with a jar of spaghetti sauce. I like Rouse sensitive. Then you're gonna add nutritional yeast. I add like a fourth of a cup because I really love nutritional yeast. And some salt and all of that's in the blender, the cashews, the rouse, the nutritional yeast, and the salt. And then after the pasta is cooked, you would put that on top of it. I usually chop three zucchinis up and a little bits, put them in the oven for about 25 minutes and add that into the pot. So it's like pasta with a veggie cooked into it. That's my kid's favorite thing. I don't y'all didn't even know this was gonna be a recipe episode, did you? That is my kid's favorite meal. We call it tunnel pasta. If you make tunnel pasta, tag me at Natalie Crawford, MD, y'all. It's our favorite thing. So that's our easy one. So we do some type of like soup usually in the crock pot. Then we'll have a tacos, then we'll have a pasta. And then the next night we usually do some roasted veggies over quinoa. And I like to make a little garlicky cashew sauce or barbecue sauce over it or teriyaki if we want it more stir fry. So some type of roasted veggie bowl, think roasted veggie bowl. And that's our week right there. That's four nights. So. We have those four nights, kind of easy, just fill in the gaps, get the groceries, prep them, and we're good to go for our busy week. We usually order out on Friday and play the weekend by ear. But that really allows us to not have to put tons of time into this, but eat foods that everybody likes and we feel like we're, we're eating well. So that's lunch and dinner. And then I make a green smoothie for breakfast. That's just my favorite because I'm usually working. I'm not a huge breakfast person anyway. So if I have breakfast this on the weekend, it's probably just bad medicine habits. Get up, drink coffee, do some intermittent fasting, and then have a late morning green smoothie with protein powder. I love the Aloha protein powder, but I'm sure there's a thousand good ones. But the Aloha vanilla is my favorite. So that's it. That's what I eat during the normal week. Green smoothie with protein powder, one of those lunches, one of those dinners. Boom. When you use our code A-A-W, that's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. So when people tell me, oh, eating plant-based must be so hard. I don't know how you do it. I could never give those things up. I completely understand. I don't think you're being crazy. I said for a really long time, I don't know how I'll give up cheese. Meaning, I was vegetarian for quite a bit before I went full on vegan or plant based, purely because of cheese. Cheese was the thing I was holding on to, and I will tell you, I never want to have cheese again. I have no desire for it. When you don't have it, you will not miss how it makes your body feel. Dairy in general, and now there's so many vegan cheeses, like cashew-based cheese, that are just Mm, even better than the real deal. But it's hard, mostly because change is hard. Change is scary. And eating is something that is ingrained in us. We learned that. We learned that from our parents or our cultures. And so trying to figure out a new way to eat, even if we intrinsically know that it's better, is really hard. So I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to try to help you. So that's what I eat in a normal week. And I told you how I frame it to patients. Meatless Mondays, have a meat in one time a week, the other days of the week, red meat only once. Automatically, you're upping your plants all the way and then start to tailor it back. I'll just have meat on the weekends or maybe you do what Rhett does and you just have meat when you order out and you just cook plant-based at home. Uh, That's easy and awesome. So whatever you can find that works for you, I promise you this, you're going to feel better. It is one of the best acts of self-care you can do is to treat your body kindly and to decrease your own inflammation that you are putting in through your digestion and letting your gut absorb. So I'm hopeful that some of these tips were helping you. I do want to say I do have the Enhance Your Natural Fertility course where we go into some of this even more, but that is on NatalieCoffordMD.com. You'll see it right there on the fertility course section. We have So many people signed up. It's an amazing community. We have live office hours and way too much education to learn. So if you're interested, go and check it out. I also want to say that we have Doctors for Fertility, which is a nonprofit organization that your doctors all over the country have started to try to advocate for your reproductive rights and make sure that politicians are not taking them away, especially when it comes to your fertility and your pregnancy care. We would love it if you would follow us at Doctors for Fertility on Instagram and consider sharing what we're doing and helping us spread the news. All right. Well, now it is time for our weekly Q&A. So this is For Fertility's Sake, FFS. This is your weekly Q&A. I do want to remind you that you can ask these questions every week on Monday on Instagram at Natalie Crawford, MD. Or you can call the voicemail. Write the number down. 657-229-3672. Again, that is 657-229-3672. We are going to be doing some Q&A episodes, all pulled from the voicemail. I know when I post on Instagram, I get thousands of questions. You guys are amazing, but there's no way to cover them all. But the voicemail, there's so many fewer of them. We are going to be highly prioritizing. So if you really want your question answered, then do not hesitate and call the voicemail. All right. Can you have sex during the egg retrieval or frozen embryo transfer process? For the most part, no. A variety of reasons why. Sometimes I will let people the very early start of it doesn't really matter. But if we just think about it, number one, in an egg retrieval process, you don't want to have an infection. Number two, not every egg always gets aspirated. You can ovulate some of them. And there was a case of somebody who was an egg donor who had sex around her egg retrieval and ended up getting pregnant with like quintuplets, something terrible. So you could get pregnant with high order multiples, you could get an infection. And during the frozen embryo transfer process, same thing, you could get an infection or there's some evidence, even though it's not stellar, that intercourse and orgasm might cause uterine contractions and potentially make it harder for an embryo to implant. That hasn't really been proven in any big study, but it's just safer not to have intercourse until you've seen that baby with a heartbeat. All right, what questions should we ask in a preconception visit? This is a really good thing. Number one, you should have a preconception visit. Do you even know that's a thing? You can go to the OBGYN and probably 90% of them, their favorite, favorite appointment slot is a preconception visit. This is when you talk to your OB before you are getting pregnant. They are going to draw some blood work to check for genetic diseases. They're going to check that you're immune to rubella and varicella and you don't need any booster shots. They're going to check that your thyroid's okay and your vitamin D's okay and everything looks good to get pregnant. They're going to ask you about your period. So what should you ask? You should ask if you have any issues with your periods, if there's anything else that could be going on or if there's any tests. If you've ever had history that is really suspicious, like a chlamydia infection, you can ask or consider getting an x-ray test of your fallopian tubes early or if you have a known diagnosis of endometriosis. If your partner has an issue especially with erection ejaculation, you're concerned you may not be able to have intercourse, ask for a referral to a urologist to get them seen sooner so you can start that process. But pretty much, they're going to make sure everything's healthy to get pregnant, talk you through some basics about healthy lifestyle for pregnancy, and you should ask them, well, when do I contact you? What does it look like when I do get pregnant? That way you can talk through that. It's also a good time for you to see if that OB is a good fit for you, which things I like to ask is, Who delivers? Is it always your doctor? Is it doctor of the day? If so, do you meet the other doctors? There's no right or wrong answer on that one. There's pros and cons. If it's almost always your doctor, then you're probably going to wait in clinic a long time because your doctor is leaving to go deliver. If it's the doctor of the day, then your clinic appointments are probably going to be faster, but you probably want to make sure that you meet your doctor at some point or all the doctors so you feel comfortable with whoever it is. So there's no right or wrong there. All right, next is how long do you think people should wait to tell people after a positive test? I think this is highly personal, and but this is my own experience after going through so many pregnancy losses myself. So if you haven't been here for a long time, I went through many pregnancy losses. I had four total losses. And even then when we got pregnant, my daughter didn't tell anybody until after the anatomy scan, I was just too scared. In hindsight, in hindsight, the hardest thing about all of my miscarriages was that nobody knew I was pregnant. So I couldn't then call and tell them I was miscarrying because I never told them I was pregnant. So I didn't have the support that I could have had. So I think you should tell your person or your close people early so that if something goes wrong, you have those people there to support you. That doesn't mean... You have to put it on your Instagram or TikTok. You certainly can. And people are sharing their stories and they are so brave and vulnerable out there. But I think that the idea that we need to keep it a secret and hide it from everybody is really outdated. It makes miscarriage and pregnancy loss even more of a stigma. And the more that we feel comfortable opening up to the people close to us, the more they're going to be able to support us if something does go wrong. All right. Why do they put you on birth control before IVF? This is a great question. There are a lot of different protocols for IVF, meaning the medications that we use to achieve the job. The job of the medications in IVF are to get the eggs that are available in one month all to grow. When those eggs grow, we are allowing the eggs to mature, and those are the ones we can take out with the egg retrieval. The body only naturally wants one of them to grow. So this means we're having the body go against what it normally wants. And depending on your age, you could get anywhere from 10 to 30 eggs. It just very much depends on your age and your ovarian reserve. Birth control is typically used to synchronize the cohort. How I like to think about this is FSH is follicle stimulating hormone, and it's the hormone from the brain that usually stimulates one egg to grow. Think about the brain sending out just enough FSH for that one egg. When you take birth control, it stops the brain from sending out FSH. And so, what that means is that all of the eggs that are available that month don't have any food. So they synchronize, they stay small, the receptors for FSH open wide up. And then if you come in after that with high doses of FSH, we're now exposing all those eggs to tons of FSH and allowing all of them to grow. So it's really a great option for some people to try to get more eggs to grow. Now that being said, everybody responds to birth control different, and I certainly have seen it over-suppress some people, And I'll try a normal protocol or a birth control protocol because I think it will be best based on their ovarian reserve. And I just do not like my results. And so I will then cancel and do another protocol. So it's not always perfect for everybody, but it is a very common thing that we use in IVF to try to optimize the number of eggs that you can potentially get. All right, I'm going to end with, does intermittent fasting negatively impact your fertility? I think I just told you earlier that I tend to intermittently fast just naturally as a part of my workday. Overall, it has not been shown to negatively impact your fertility. That being said, when you're going through fertility treatments, we really don't want that to be a time period where you're trying to lose weight. We don't want to stress the body out more. So I don't really love prolonged fasting. You know, when you do intermittent fasting, some people do a prolonged fast, they do a really long interval. I don't love that when you're trying to get pregnant. I do think though intermittent fasting, meaning having a fasting window or eating a little bit later in the morning, does allow your body to become a little more insulin sensitive. And that is a really good thing. We want it to respond better to insulin in order to not have a lot of extra sugar lying around. So I allow patients to intermittent fast. I just don't want a very super long fasting window. And I do not like us to be in a calorie deficit when we're trying to conceive. So if we have weight to lose, I like to do that first and then try to get pregnant. All right, you guys, I hope you have enjoyed this episode. I am so appreciative of all of you. Thank you for all of your support in this podcast, all of the questions that you ask for fertility's sake. And remember, we are doing Q&A episode coming up from the voicemail 657-229-3672. And the questions we've gotten so far are so good. You're going to love it. Thanks, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford, MD, and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford, MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.